Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. Capital campaigns are actually amazing opportunities for fundraiser growth as well, because a fundraiser who goes through a capital campaign comes out the other end a much stronger fundraiser. Welcome back to What the Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. Today, I'm interviewing Amy Eisenstein. Amy is the CEO and co-founder of Capital Campaign Pro and has been a development professional and fundraising consultant for more than 25 years. As a consultant, Amy continues to empower nonprofits by guiding them through capital campaigns that aim to boost their capacity and growth. Amy's expertise in donor education and engagement is invaluable to organizations seeking long-term success. And when I was a fundraiser, Amy was the number one thought leader that I learned from and followed. In this conversation, Amy helps me understand capital campaigns so much better, as I am definitely not an expert in this area. She talks about how capital campaigns can propel nonprofit organizations towards expansion and growth, both in terms of the money they raise for organizations, but also in terms of the structure they force organizations to adopt. She also talks about the art of balancing annual fund donations with capital campaign contributions to maximize funding, and we even touch on how to manage the overhead myth throughout all of it. There is a lot we can learn from Amy about building individual donor relationships through the way she teaches capital campaign management. Okay, I could go on and on, but let's dive in so you can learn more from Amy. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Amy Eisenstein. Amy, welcome to What the Fundraising. Thank you so much for having me. So I really feel like you are someone who needs no introduction. You are probably the only actually consultant that I really followed as a fundraiser who I would go to for all of my different resources. But why don't we start with you just sharing a little bit about your background, what brings you to this work, and what you're so passionate about working on today? Oh, thanks. So I started my fundraising career as a development director. I worked at a few different shops over more than a decade. And so I feel like I I really feel the pain of and understand what it's like to be a development director because that was me for more than 10 years. The second half of my career has been as a consultant, of course. So I also had the opportunity to work with so many organizations And I fell into fundraising. I think like everybody, most people don't like when they're five, like, oh, I wish I was a fundraiser, but I knew I wanted to help people. And that has taken shape in different forms over the course of my career. But I think fundraising is one of the main ways to really supercharge the engines of nonprofits. And I'm just so grateful to be here and happy that I can help in whatever way that I can. 
Thanks for saying that. I agree. I feel like fundraising often gets siloed as like this means to an end or the necessary evil to like do the work. And I really see it as the trim tab, like the catalyst that powers the work that cultivates supporters and builds movements and all of those things. And so I love the way you talk about and think about fundraising. And I know when I first started really learning about your work, it was in the major gifts arena and the relationship building space. And now you're doing a lot of work on capital campaigns and helping people run capital campaigns through your program. And so let's just start with the basics, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what a capital campaign is and when an organization would use it. So could we start there? Yeah, absolutely. So capital can be used in all different ways, but a lot of people think it's just a building. It's not necessarily just a building, but many capital campaigns do incorporate some component of building or refurbishing or whatever it is, equipment, infrastructure, but it's really about capacity building for an organization. So I like to think about capital campaigns as every once in a while fundraising efforts that are well beyond your normal annual operating fundraising. So every 10 years or every 20 years, you need to really supercharge and boost your organization to get it to the next level of program or service. You need a capital campaign. Sometimes it involves a building, sometimes it doesn't, but often it's either started with a strategic planning process, the organization is ready to get to the next level of program or service, or it is often triggered by an organization outgrowing its space. Honestly, there's a waiting list or not enough room in the facility or the facility is falling apart. And that often triggers a campaign as well. But it really is a multi-year fundraising effort that's once in a while. I think that's probably the best explanation. And when you think about the percentage of the revenue raise that is operating versus programs. You were saying operation, like capacity building before. So is it typical that a capital campaign is mostly operational fundraising? I don't think I think about it in that way. I think of annual fund as program service operations. That's what you need every year to run your programs and services. So your annual fund is everything that you need to run the day-to-day of your organization. It can be operating, it can be program. A capital campaign focuses on long-term growth. So I guess a rudimentary explanation is that when you think of a house, right, or an analogy is a house. So you're operating and your annual fund or grocery bills and electric bills and garbage bills and water bills, heating, things that you pay every month over and over and over. A capital campaign would be a new roof. It lasts for 20 years. The hot water heater that lasts for 20 years. It's not a perfect analogy because there's lots of, a capital campaign can be used for any capacity building. So maybe a marketing or rebranding campaign would fall into capacity building. Launching a new program, the first three years of program or service to get a program off the ground might be capacity building. And it would be programmed, but only for a short time to get it up and running. So it's a ramp up, enhancing your fundraising and your infrastructure, your technology, building, of course, endowment. Everybody wants more endowment, but scholarship funds and other things like that 
So long-term projects are really what capital campaigns are all about. All right. That's really helpful. And I think helps folks see the diversity of things you could be raising money for in a capital campaign. So I'm sure one of the questions that folks are wondering is, are we big enough? Are we ready for a capital campaign? And usually when we see people talking about capital campaigns, we are looking at campaigns that are in the multi-millions of dollars. And so I'm curious, like, how do you think about those benchmarks, both like what's the smallest capital campaign you've ever seen run? And then how does an organization know if they're ready to take on something like that? There's probably not a perfect definition to me, it's an X factor of what you normally raise, and it's for a specific project or program or purpose that's going to catapult the organization to the next level of program or service. So generally, it is multi-million dollar. Some of our smallest clients are raising a $2 million capital campaign raise, and our biggest are raising more than $100 million. But it's over and above your normal fundraising and your normal annual fund. But could an organization say uh, they need a new school bus that would be, I don't know how much a school bus is, $100,000 <laughs> and call it a capital campaign and a special project? Sure. Might it be a major gift campaign? I think it's semantics, honestly. But Usually a capital campaign should be as much as you can raise over multiple years, usually three years, four years. So if you're going to raise money for a school bus in one year, I don't think I'd classify that as a capital campaign. You don't have to put a lot of new systems and structures and strategy in place to do that. I'm curious, like, I do feel like there's a little bit more comfort maybe with fundraisers when they're asking donors to increase. So I have seen organizations call things capital campaigns that are those single year that I think actually hearing you say this, I'm like, yeah, it was a major gift campaign. There were no new systems and structures. It went to infrastructure and it was a long-term investment that was being made as a result of those funds. But in terms of how the fundraising strategy ran, it was not actually a capital campaign. But I think for the organization, they felt so much more comfortable going to their major donors, asking them to increase their giving for this branded capital campaign than they would have. So I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, I think if it's for one item, uh, let's use the school bus example, and they can do it in one year, which presumably they did. Yeah. I would call it a special project, a major gift effort. I wouldn't call it a capital campaign. A capital campaign is really a multi-year effort. It's a multiplier of what you raise, and it raises the whole organization. And so the whole organization needs to get to the next level of program and service they have to raise capacity of across the board. Like I said, whether it's two times what they raise annually or 10 times or 20 times, it's got to be a multiplier. And if you can raise it in a one-year project, then it's probably just a special major gifts effort. And you can say, we're doing this special fundraising effort. We need a school bus. We're asking you for your annual fund gift plus extra to get this special school bus. And that's great. That's a major gift campaign. It's not a capital campaign. 
Okay. I really appreciate that distinction. And I want to talk about sort of what are some of those distinct differences in a capital campaign, especially around the donor relationship management piece and how you sort of maintain your annual fund while you are running a capital campaign. But before we go there, I want to ask, and you can tell me if you don't want to answer this question, I'm really curious about how the overhead conversation fits into capital campaigns. And if there's any distinct differences in how we approach that conversation in them. I think that good fundraisers acknowledge that there is overhead and administrative costs to doing business and to doing fundraising and to running a nonprofit. This idea that 100% of fundraising goes to program and service and doesn't pay the light bills is something that's perpetuated by the media and so bad for nonprofits. So I want every good fundraiser to be talking to every donor about the fact that it does cost 10, 20, sometimes even 30% of contributions or the budget of the organization to pay for administrative support and systems and infrastructure. And none of the programs and services could happen without that. And so this notion of no overhead to me is so absurd, but I think it is the same in a capital campaign as it is an annual fund. But in fact, because everything's a multiplier, capital campaigns actually are probably the least expensive type of fundraising. On average, we say that it costs 10 cents to raise a dollar in most other types of fundraising direct mail, certainly events, even grant writing is 20, 30, 40, 50% cents to raise a dollar. And so because of the economies of scales that come with capital campaigns, it is actually the most affordable, if that's the word, type of fundraising. And so you can talk about that with donors. In fact, we're only spending 10 cents to raise every dollar for most capital campaigns. Mm. That's really interesting. And I, I agree with you, of course, about the overhead myth and how damaging that is to our sector. And there seems to be more and more data coming out looking at how organizations that have invested in operations and infrastructure actually do so much better over time. And so there is something to me about the capital campaign conversation that you have with donors just about investing in the organization and long-term growth that I believe maybe without any empirical evidence that it helps donors understand how nonprofits work a little bit better as opposed to just like this sort of 100% myth model that is sometimes out there. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. We're on the same page about that. <laughs> so I love that about capital campaigns. I think they help educate donors in a lot of ways too. Let's talk a little bit about how, because I think there's a lot that folks can learn, whether they're going to do a capital campaign or not, about how the relationship management side of capital campaigns work and sort of the multi-year commitments and how those get managed with annual fund, like maintaining the annual fund of the organization. And I'd be super curious to know, I hear a lot, and I'm sure you do too, about people downgrading their donors or making assumptions about what folks cannot do before asking folks what they can do and can really easily 
look at their list of donors and say, oh, we don't have what we need here to do more, do something so big. So how do you start folks off even thinking about this? First of all, you asked me three or five questions. In I know, one, I know. So- I'll go one by one. I'll go one by one. I got too excited. Yeah. So I actually <laughs> want to go back for one second to something you said just earlier about educating donors. Capital campaigns are actually amazing opportunities for fundraiser growth as well, because a fundraiser who goes through a capital campaign comes out the other end, a much stronger fundraiser. They have the opportunity to ask for gifts bigger than they've ever asked for before. They often have consultants coaching them. There's more fundraising infrastructure and training and education. And so in addition to educating donors, Fundraisers come out the end of a capital campaign as much stronger fundraisers, or at least they should, unless they subcontract it out completely. But ideally, they learn and grow. And we build the capacity of our organizations that way by making our internal fundraising team stronger. So, okay, so we want to talk about relationship management, annual fund. Let me start with annual fund because I think that that's a question that everybody has is, is this going to eat my annual fund? Is this going to destroy my annual fund? Is that part of your question? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The good news is that if you do capital campaign strategy right, and not everybody does, but if you do pay attention to capital campaign strategy, we do something we call the double mention, double ask. So every time you're interacting with a donor, whether it's written communication or verbal, you're talking to a donor, you always acknowledge either that you're asking for both or you mention both, even if you're just asking for one. So for example, if you're sitting down in front of a campaign donor and you're asking for the campaign, you might say, listen, you've been a generous annual fund donor to our programs and services for years. That's why we're here talking to you about this exciting growth opportunity. We want you to know that everybody we raise money from this year, we're going to first and foremost be asking them to maintain or even potentially increase their annual fund gift and make a capital campaign gift over and above that as a one-time special gift because we need to maintain our programs and services that we have while we build this building or whatever we're doing. And we can't sacrifice our current programs and services, our existing programs and services. So we're really going to, let's say you've been giving $1,000 a year. We're going to ask you for $15,000 over the next three years. The first thousand each year will go to the annual fund. And so ultimately, even though you'll have given $15,000, $12,000 will go to the capital campaign. And 3000 will go to the annual to continuing to support the annual fund. And that's our ask, right? But we educate donors, we explain it to them. Even in mailings, we say, hey, wonderful annual fund donor, we're doing this special one time campaign. Can you give an extra gift this year? Or here's our letter for the annual fund. Stay tuned for more information about an exciting campaign coming up. So you always mention both. And there's different times and places and ways to mention it, depending on where you are in the campaign. Very early on, you talk about it differently than later, depending on what you're asking for. Sometimes you're asking for two gifts at once. Sometimes you're just mentioning the other campaigns so that they're aware of it and alert to it. And that's what we teach our clients to do. 
I really love the way you phrased wrapping it into that three-year gift and sort of splitting that up. I think that helps make it clear in a way where it's a unified ask, but also clear that it's for this special campaign. So how do you find, like, are there some relationship management strategies that you would recommend for fundraisers? Like, how does their relationship management change during a capital campaign with that major donor who's been giving $1,000 a year and then all of a sudden committed to this $15,000 over three years, what becomes different about how that relationship is managed? I think there's a couple of things that are different. And I'm going to start early on in the campaign as an engagement tool to get some of those. And, you know, $15,000 is a small gift in the scope of capital campaigns. So I should have been talking about a million dollar gift, but certainly with leadership level gifts, you know, six and seven figure gifts and up you're going to start engaging those donors very early on with the feasibility study and some pre-campaign planning conversations. And so those people will be involved and engaged if you play your cards right and really pay attention to capital campaign strategy so that you engage them and they're involved way before you ask them for a gift. I'm not quite sure if you're asking who does this, If it's the executive director or the development director, I'll finish one thought and then you can tell me if I didn't answer your question. But I think it's important to keep the donor engaged after they make the pledge, of course, because you want them to finish paying their pledge. So the real danger in a capital campaign or any multi-year pledge is that you ask for it and then sort of ignore them. And so you do want a communications plan, a cultivation plan, a stewardship plan in place so that at least on an annual basis, but hopefully more frequently, quarterly or semi-annually, you are checking in with that donor, giving them an update, letting them know how it's going. You're not just sending pledge reminders and treating them like you're a collection agency. So there needs to be a lot of cultivation, stewardship, ongoing communication, And that is built into your campaign plan. Yeah. First, T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. I guess the question about who's doing it was more like, is there any difference? Like, would you, for example, have an executive director have more touch points with a donor during that capital campaign period than you would? Maybe it was the development director who always managed that relationship for annual fundraising, but do some of those strategies change? Yeah. I mean, I think that Capital campaigns are bigger versions of really effective major gift programs. So I would say that it changes a lot because most organizations don't have really good effective major gift programs before they go into campaigns. It's great when they do. But I think this is often new for a lot of the staff, including the executive director. 
And so the executive director really would be responsible for the relationships with the highest donors, the biggest donors, and the development director would be behind the scenes feeding them information and reminding them about touch points and other things. But a campaign is really an opportunity to staff up your development office. So whether you're adding administrative support, you know, that's actually one of the most frequent things that I see at small and mid-sized campaign is that they need more administrative support. Everybody sort of thinks they need a major gift officer, but nobody's going to come in and magically develop relationships. It's much more important to take other things off the executive director's plate and the development director's plate if they've been there a while. They're the ones who need to get out and be in front of donors the executive director with the biggest donors to the organization and the the most loyal and longest term donors, the development director taking the next level of donors. But what they need help with and staffing up on often is administrative support and behind the scenes help. Okay. I love that advice because one of the questions I wanted to ask is how can fundraisers avoid burnout during a capital campaign? And I feel like maybe that's the beginning of that conversation. So how do you think about that? I think that's right. I think acknowledging that a development director who's been raising 200000 a year or a million a year, it doesn't matter, can't then go on to raise a multiplier of that and keep the annual fund running with no additional staff and support. And so I think that the assumption needs to be that there will be some staffing up and consulting expertise brought in. Otherwise, you will burn out your staff. I mean, the idea, we always joke behind the scenes when a board says, we don't want to hire anybody, we just want the current staff to do it. Do you think they're sitting there twiddling their thumbs on a normal day? (laughs) They're not. And Mm. so in order to avoid burnout, you have to staff up and you have to provide the resources and the supports necessary. The other thing is that a campaign is a marathon, not a sprint. And so board members always want to know how fast can we do this? No, I want to know how much money you can raise, how well you can execute over a period of time. Usually, like I said, about three years. The intensive fundraising phase is probably 18 to 24 months because there's some pre-planning, there's some follow-up and stewardship that happens at the other end. Sometimes it stretches to four years. I would say being unrealistic, not using data, not bringing in expertise, dragging things out, that's what burns out staff. Does it happen frequently that staff leave in the middle of capital campaigns, like when those types of scenarios happen? There's some turnover. We try and encourage our clients to figure out how to make it work. It's better when there's continuity, of course. I'm not seeing a ton of turnover mid-campaign. Usually it's at the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. Like in the pre-planning, even if people think it's not being handled well or there's frustrations running high. But We've seen a little bit of turnover, but for the most part, I would say that staff is sticking it out. But maybe the organizations that we're working with are willing to invest in expertise. So I don't know if it's across the board like that. 
Yeah, right. They're already giving their fundraisers the support of working with all of you. But I think those things you listed around, this is what burns fundraisers out. My guess is the organizations that are not bringing in outside expertise, not staffing up all those things that they risk probably the most dangerous thing in the middle of a capital campaign, other than not following up with donors who have given, which is their development staff leaving. So I think recognizing those things is super important. So I just sent out an email last week surveying my list for just trying to get a pulse of like where people are at right now in terms of their fundraising, where they're feeling overwhelmed, what they feel like they need. One of the questions I asked in the survey was, how many more donor meetings would you like to have every week? And it was like one, two, three, four, five, none. I have too many meetings on my schedule. The third most popular choice was none. It was like the most popular choice was one, the second most popular choice was two, and the third most popular choice was none. I have no time for more donor meetings. And these are organizations who all want to raise more money. And it really freaked me out, honestly, around how little space we have to receive and call in and raise that amount of money. And I think about if fundraisers are afraid of getting more meetings on their schedule? What are all the fundraising behaviors they're not doing that might lead to that? And so I'm just curious about your reflections on that. I think that is indicative of the sad state of affairs that our sector is in. Every good development director should have said they want more meetings not fewer, right? So, I mean, the good news is that most people want at least one more. I mean, I'm curious how many they have currently, but truthfully, I'm guessing that it's one or two or not that many. So on the one hand, if they're having one and they want one more, that's double. Okay. That's a good start. If they have a few, you know, I I want everybody to have significantly more meetings, To me, I would like to have one donor meeting every day. So I think five is a good goal. So when they say they want one or two more, I do wonder how many they're having. That's an important question to ask. None freaks me out. I can't believe that anybody is at capacity, but they're overworked and underfunded and understaffed and under-resourced. And that's why they're saying that, because they're responsible for too much of the administrative things. My guess is that development directors are being pulled into at a minimum marketing, at a maximum program. And so it is very problematic. But if we do want people to raise more money, you're right. That's probably the number one thing they need is more donor conversations. And if there's any silver lining to COVID, it's this, it's video chat. And so I would say to a fundraiser, you can have three or four meetings a day on Zoom with donors. You know, great. When we can be in person, wonderful. Be in person. But don't let that stop you. Now we've got this amazing tool that everybody knows how to use and everybody gets. And it's efficient and it's effective. When you can sit down in someone's living room, wonderful. Do it. But To me, if I can have three meetings a day instead of one driving around, great. 
Yeah, I know. I should have asked. I think I was so stunned by the answer. Then I regretted not asking that other question about how many meetings they had, but I just was not expecting that. And yeah, I think you're right. Like I understand why they wrote that, like the level of overwhelm they feel makes them feel like they have no space left. And so I think your recommendation around staffing up on an administrative level, like I just want people to hear that as some overarching advice in fundraising, because I think you're right that we go right to like, we need a new development officer or we need a an event coordinator and maybe event coordinator takes off other administrative tasks. But like we go straight to like the, we need a major gifts officer instead of looking at like our very skilled staff member who has 25% of their time to actually meet with donors and yeah. what we could do to open yeah. up space for them. Let's promote them. Let's make them what development director or VP for advancement or like just give them a promotion and hire underneath if they're doing a great job, if they know your programs and services, if they're passionate, if they're committed. No outside magical major gift officer is going to come in and do better than that. If you have somebody who already knows your community, knows your donors, is hardworking, is passionate, Let's give them a raise and hire somebody to support them. Yeah. Okay. The question I was going to ask you before is, so we talked a little bit about how you manage the annual fund with your capital campaign, but how do folks manage running other smaller campaigns in the midst of a capital campaign or should they? And how do they make sure that if they do, that they aren't getting messaging confusing. And it seems very muddled to me. Yeah, I would say without any more context, they shouldn't. Like it's annual fund and capital campaign. There should, shouldn't be any sort of straggly things, I don't think. And then the one thing that we haven't talked about is a comprehensive campaign that some organizations do. And that's where you're counting every dollar into the organization and you're not separating annual fund from capital campaign. There are reasons to do it and reasons not to do it. For the most part, colleges and universities do comprehensive campaigns and they count every dollar in the door over a certain period of time. And that's how they get to their billion dollar goals. Most smaller community-based organizations, probably it's cleaner to separate out. This is capital and this is annual. And then the messaging's clearer. But there are some organizations that do comprehensive campaigns, and that's fine. There are reasons to do them and just as good reasons not to. But so tell me more if you want to about another sort of campaign in the middle of that. I do think that sounds complicated. Yeah, maybe what I mean, and I'm just revealing my limited knowledge of capital campaigns as we talk about this, but maybe what I mean is like, okay, so Giving Tuesday is coming up or it's August and they're in the middle of a capital campaign, but they want to do a big push around Giving Tuesday because that's always been a very exciting sort of peak moment for their organization. How do yes. they wrap that into this? It depends on what stage of the campaign they're in. However, because the quiet phase, people have probably heard of the quiet phase, that's when you're asking for gifts one-on-one, -on -one, you're not doing anything online, direct mail, there's no email, there's no social media. So Giving Tuesday wouldn't get in the way of your campaign. That's part of your annual fund. You've done it in years past. You should absolutely do that. That's part of your annual fund messaging. Even if it's for a special project or program, it's still part of your annual fund and you do it every year. 
So I don't see any issue with that. It gets a little messier if Giving Tuesday falls in the public phase of your campaign, because the public phase of your campaign is when you go and ask everybody via mail and and email and social media. But what you can say is, hey, you've probably heard we're doing a capital campaign and it's Giving Tuesday. So why not double your gift so that we can give to the annual fund and to the capital campaign? It is about messaging, or you might say, the money for Giving Tuesday is going to the annual fund as it always has, and you're going to get a mailing from us in a couple of weeks to ask for your capital campaign gift. So the double mention, right? Mm. We want to make sure that we're always talking about it. And that is where the messaging is really critically important so that donors don't get confused. So in every solicitation, you say, hey, this time we're asking you for X, Y, Z, but stay tuned and be aware we're going to come. Now, are you risking that they won't give one time or another? Sure, it's a possibility. In the public phase of the campaign, people make choices, but we are asking them to dig deep and go over and above for the capital project. That's really helpful to think about. And I'm curious, I interviewed a behavioral scientist on the show a little while ago, and she was talking about, I'm forgetting the actual term in behavioral science, but the way that we speed up when we're close to the end of something. She talks about how when we get close to a bus stop, no matter how soon our bus is arriving, humans just start walking faster. And it's been studied in all of these different ways where just when we can sort of see that end, we start to move quicker. And and then, you know, we know all the science around motivation and how that dips in the middle of things. And my first part of this question is, how do you help folks stay motivated in the middle of this three-year period where they can't see the end for a very long time? Yeah, <laughs> definitely challenging. There's a lot of tips and tricks. I don't maybe that's not the best word. It's not a trick but strategies that we implement. And one of them is announcing a challenge match, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, we would say, okay, right now we're trying to get the $25,000 donors. So we've got this one donor who for the next 10, $25,000 donors that come in will match it. And it's not something that you need to publicize because you're just talking one-on-one to people, And this may surprise people actually, but it's interesting that you started with that speeding up at the end. The public phase of your campaign is actually the shortest phase, one of the shortest phases. I think it comes as a surprise to people. You're raising the last 15 or 20% or maybe 25% of your campaign dollars, but it's only three months or maybe six at the most, but it's this burst of fundraising energy and activity a flurry of mailings and phone calls and email and social media, but it's not the long part of your campaign. The long sloggy part of your campaign is the quiet phase. And there's a lot of strategy that goes into that. And I think celebrating the wins for sure is critically important because it is long and potentially frustrating in the middle when some gifts that you hope would come through either faster or at all don't come in as fast as you hoped, or maybe you don't get them. And so I think it is important to think about how are we keeping our staff spirits up and the volunteers spirits up and what are we reporting on? And is there an exciting gift that we can share and create momentum and excitement? 
sometimes one of the big gifts at the beginning of the campaign, we sort of hold off on the announcement for those slow periods. And so we can say, oh my gosh, we got this huge gift and we're announcing it. Might have happened six months ago, but we sort of wait to announce it for the right time when people need that burst of energy. But a matching gift campaign or effort, you know, I hate to use the word campaign because it's not widespread, but there are different strategies during different periods of the campaign. But the public phase is shorter than most people think because that cannot drag on. That will feel like a drag. I love that. And I think that answers another question that I had sort of been holding, which was around donor fatigue and repetition and things like that. And so that really clarifies for folks that in those personalized communications, yeah, you are going to be repetitive because you're talking about the same campaign, but those are really like personal relationships. And then that public piece is that short burst of ton of excitement and they're close to the end. So everybody is walking fast and and really excited to get there. Okay, I could ask you a thousand more questions about this. I've learned so much during this conversation. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? I think one of the most frequent questions that we get at Capital Campaign Pro is how does an organization know if they're ready for a campaign and how do they get ready? So we do have some readiness assessments site for free if people want to. It's a short checklist of questions, but I think it's critically important to get the board on board. There needs to be a specific project or program or something that you're fundraising for. It's not just about, I guess, another frequent question that we got that we haven't touched on. A lot of people will call us and say, it's our 50th anniversary, so we want to raise $50 million. And what I would say to those folks is, an anniversary is wonderful. It's a time to celebrate, and it's a time to acknowledge what you've done. But anniversaries look back, and campaigns look forward. And $50 million for your 50th anniversary, it's not tied to what you will do in the future. So your campaign goal needs to reflect the outcomes and the objectives of the campaign. So what does $50 million get you? So it can't be an arbitrary goal. It has to be tied to the campaign objectives. There is a lot of thought and process that needs to go into a campaign. So I would just say, use the tools that are available to you. Invest in expertise so that you're setting your campaign up right from the beginning You know, the saddest thing is when people call us and they've sort of raised maybe two thirds of their campaign goal and they're totally stuck, but they didn't set it upright from the beginning. And it's much harder to get someone unstuck than it is to get them in the right direction in the first place. Those are also helpful. I'll make sure the links are below directly to Capital Campaign Pro and those assessment tools. Where else can folks go to find you, follow along, learn more? Oh, thanks for all of our free resources and support system is at capitalcampaignpro.com. I think that's the first place I would send people. We also do a podcast called All About Capital Campaigns, and you can find it on any podcasting app. So I'd love to have your listeners follow along. Yes, absolutely. We'll have the links for everything below. And thank you so much for this conversation today. Thanks for having me. Okay, there is so much wisdom inside this episode, but here are the top things I am double-clicking on right now. 
Number one, before embarking on a capital campaign, organizations should conduct a thorough readiness assessment by taking an honest look at their current resources, fundraising capabilities, and overall strategic goals. Number two, while the public phase of a capital campaign is often shorter than other stages, it should be treated as an intense period of fundraising activity. Number three, by creating a sense of urgency and momentum during the public phase, nonprofits can further galvanize donors and boost the success of their capital campaign. There is so much momentum in those moments. Number four, Amy highlights the fact that capital campaigns are not just about raising funds for infrastructure, but are actually major multipliers that can greatly increase an organization's reach and impact and strengthen the skills of the fundraising team itself. And then number five, communicating the objectives and progress of a capital campaign is critical to maintaining donor engagement and overall campaign momentum. And this is something all campaigns can learn from. Okay, for additional takeaways and tips inside this episode, head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Amy and Capital Campaign Pro. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to malloryerickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.